What would you do for God? Seriously, if you're, um, let's say you're driving to work tomorrow, and suddenly the radio changes miraculously or turns on by itself, and you hear this booming voice in the car, and that voice asks you to do something. What would you do? Or you're out for a walk in the park, outdoors, in your yard, somewhere in nature. And again, this happens. And this voice asks you to do something. Would you say yes? Now, a lot of us here have said yes to God, and we're doing things for God. I remember uh, last year when we recognized all the volunteers in this church, and we collected a list of all those volunteers there is way over a hundred and some people here who are doing something, just here in the church, doing things for God. But the real question isn't that, are there limits? I think most of us would say, well, if God asked me to do something, yeah, I'd try and do it. But is there a point where you draw a line and say, whoa, that's too far, God? You've asked too much. I can't do that. I won't do that. We all see these reality shows where we say, "Uh uh-uh, not doing that. I I don't generally watch them, but I was channel surfing, and I don't even know which one it was, but the partners, one was in this monstrous aquarium covered with snakes, and the other partner was picking the snakes up with their mouth and transporting them to another place to be weighed. And I thought, you know, I wouldn't do that. That's just, (laughs) I wouldn't be the one in the tank, buried in the snakes. They did give them goggles in a swimming suit. And I'm not going to be the one picking them up with my bare mouth. But what about God? Are there limits we would say, God, I can't go that far? Well, we've been looking at the man named Jonah. And today we come to a point where Jonah reluctantly says yes to God. Now we've been looking the last few weeks and we've seen in chapters 1 and 2 where God comes along to Jonah and he says, Jonah, I need you to go to Nineveh and preach. And Jonah says, no way, I'm not doing that. And he even uh, tried to escape from God and, and avoid doing that. And he took ship and headed towards Tarshish. But we know how that turned out. We looked last week. It's hard to run from God. And Jonah realized that. And as George read in his communion meditation, from the bottom of the ocean, Jonah says to God, Okay, I'll do it. Well, we want to pick up that story in chapter 3 today. And it's interesting, God still has the same request of Jonah. He repeats it for Jonah in case he's forgotten. I don't think he had, but God wanted to remind him. Verses 1 and 2, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave you. Now maybe Jonah was hoping that he'd gone through all this stuff that God had figured out. Jonah maybe wasn't really going to be up to it and God would change something. Or soften it, or just pray for Nineveh, or, you know, something a little easier. But God didn't do that. But Jonah has learned his lesson. Look at verse 3 and 4. 
Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a large, a very large city. It took three days just to walk through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, we've tried to understand what was going on in Jonah's mind throughout this sermon series, and I want to do this a little bit today. Can you imagine what Jonah's journey was like? Uh, we showed you, if you weren't here, uh, we know now where the ancient city of Nineveh was. It, was. it is literally right across the river from the current city of Mosul in Iraq. We've had troops stationed there. It's been a bloody battleground. Right across the river is Nineveh, the mounds of Nineveh. Jonah was probably in northern Israel when God spoke to him. That is a fairly significant journey. You're crossing Syria, Jordan, Syria, Iraq. The point I'm trying to make is Jonah just didn't go there in a day. He didn't buy an airplane ticket. This would have been a multiple day, maybe even a couple week trip. Can you imagine if you were Jonah making that trip? Every night at the campfire, what am I doing? I'm going to get there and they're going to kill me? All of those things we've been talking about that made Jonah not want to go to Nineveh, I don't think Jonah had gotten rid of all of those doubts and feelings and thinking. I don't think he was any more excited to go to Nineveh. He just knew he had to do it. I think that was an incredibly long trip for Jonah. As he had no clue what was waiting for him. He hadn't read the book. He didn't know the final chapter. And still he was going with this enormous amount of questions and fears and apprehension. Well, we have been looking throughout this whole series of how our lives so parallel Jonah. And we've seen that God has the same question for us that he had for Jonah. Will we go? Will we go outside of our Christian circles where we're comfortable? Will we go to our Nineveh? those around us who are far from God. We've seen how God has asked us to help him. Even though it's difficult for us to think about going to our Nineveh, but we've also seen how God himself is going. He's not asking us to do something he's not doing. The truth is God himself came to earth. Because of Nineveh. We're going to see in the final sermon. No, next week. We're going to see God and what he does. And how he says, how can I not care? That's who our God is. That's what he is doing. He has already come to earth in the form of Jesus, leaving the comfort and glory and privileges of heaven. And we're told in Philippians 2, taking on the very form of a servant and being obedient even to the point of death. That's how much God cares. And he asks us to help him. I used the story in the first sermon on Jonah of us losing our grandkids at Cabela's. I think everybody resonated with that. We were madly searching for those kids. 
had you been along as our friends, we would have asked, expected you to help. God is madly searching for his children that are far away. He's not asking us to do it for him. He's saying, will you help me? Will you help me? That's what he's asking of us. But to do that, we have to leave our comfort zones. Just like God asked Jonah to leave his comfort zone. To go to people who made us uncomfortable. Nineveh, Jonah hated them. They were their enemies. Their gods were foreign. Their values, their culture, their language, everything was different. God was asking him to do things he didn't know how to do. He'd taught in Sunday school. He'd preached sermons in church. He'd never been a missionary. God asks us to do that. I think Jonah was convinced he was wasting his time. This was Nineveh. And we're going to see next week he wasn't. But as far as had you asked Jonah on a scale of 1 to 10, Jonah, what would you give yourself a failing? He said 10. What's that commercial? 13 on a scale of 1 to 10. And I think a lot of us feel that way. We hear comments from our co-workers and how far they are from God, how uninterested in church or Christianity, and we say, this would be the classic waste of time. I want to take a minute so we understand our struggle with being Jonah and going to Nineveh. I want us to talk about our comfort zone, where we are, and maybe a little bit of why we are so comfortable. I pointed out in the first sermon that Jonah was doing things for God. He was already known as a prophet of God. He was quite willing to be used of God when he was going to his own people. God had already used him. We know that from kings. God had used him to speak for God. And Jonah was cool with all of that. God, anytime you want me to be a prophet among Israel, I am your man. But aren't we any different? I think most of us would say we enjoy doing things for God. And we enjoy doing things among God's people. Helping each other, serving each other, anytime we can do that, that we feel good about that. We hear Jesus saying, I have left you an example for you to do as I've done. And he washes feet of the disciples. And we say, well, you know, it'd be a little smelly, but I'll do that. I'll wash feet of the disciples, the folks around me and my church family. I've shown you this diagram. I want to use it again today. This is the classic bridge track that I think Campus Crusade created of how to become a Christian. And how we are separated from God by our sin and we're never going to get across the bridge by ourselves but because of Christ, we can. But what I added to the diagram was the church, because who are we? We are the ones who've crossed over. And we're comfortable there. In fact, if anyone else comes over, if they cross over, we'll be happy to teach them how to live on this side of the cross. And, and we're comfortable doing that. 
We might even yell back across the chasm, come on over, it's good over here. And we're okay with that. We'll put up a poster, come on over. We'll give somebody a ticket, come on over. This is our comfort zone. And as long as God says, would you stay over here and take care of each other and yell across the chasm for me, we're okay with that. The problem is God asks us to do more. You see, Jesus did set us an example. But if you look at the life of Jesus and look how much he spent time not with the righteous, but with the others, everybody else. It wasn't just about washing feet of the disciples. It wasn't just about sitting around a campfire and the, the 12 of us, or the 13 of us, talking about the day and enjoying the stars. Jesus also sat by a well and visited a woman who had had five divorces and was living with her sixth man. And he sat and visited with her about what, what matters in life. He was willing to go to Matthew's house and be a guest of honor at a banquet where pretty much everybody was a sinner. And there was going to be behavior and vocabulary and discussions that Jesus wouldn't have chosen to be a part of. But he went. He welcomed adulterers, the corrupt, Zealots, we would call them rebels with blood on their hands. Prostitutes. People that would make us very uncomfortable. And Jesus welcomed them. He talked with them. And when he says, follow my example, he included that too. Not just washing the disciples' feet. The thing that we have to face today, and this is honestly part teaching and lecture as well as a sermon. If we're going to be honest, we have to say we have to do more. I'm talking about Christians today living in the United States. And here's why I'm saying that. Statistically, the percentage of Christians in our country is shrinking. In the sense of proportionally how many of the people in this country are Christian versus not Christian. Now we can talk and look at a few megachurches and see them growing, and and that's great. But if you look at the nation as Christians, we're not getting the job done. We don't even have to look nationally, do we? Just look at the churches we know. And so many of them are stagnant. Their greatest fear is that they're dying and they don't know what to do to avoid dying. And even among those that are growing, if you scratch a little bit deeper beyond the attendance figures, you find that most of their growth is from sheep moving from one pasture to another. And the true numbers of people who've walked out of Nineveh and followed Jehovah for the first time are very small. The truth is, left on its own, the world is not finding its way to Jesus and to God. 
And that's why I added this separate chasm that is before we ever get to dealing with sin. And that is the chasm of a culture where they don't even know what's over here. Or if they think they know what's over here, their stereotypes are so distorted and negative they have no desire to cross over. There's nothing but a bunch of legalistic people who don't have fun with a God who doesn't have fun and who in the world would want to go over there. That's their stereotype. Those folks are just against everything. And there's others, if they even did want to come over, they don't have a clue how, to know how. Or they're convinced that nobody over there would want them. There's so many reasons that are keeping people from even coming to that bridge. The truth is, the model that the church works under in the U.S. today is really from a different time. Um, did I skip one? No. How we think in the church today is from a Christian culture. And what I mean by that is where we grew up, and some of us who are old enough grew up in a time when everybody had been to church. Everybody knew the story about Jesus. Everybody knew about God. Everybody had some familiarity with the Bible. And they shared most of the same beliefs. In fact, if the issue was anything, it was that they dropped out of church and our job was to motivate them to come back. They knew what was right and they just weren't doing it. And if we talked to them enough, they'd get back to doing what they knew was right. Our job was just to attract them to come on over where they knew they needed to be. Sort of like being the prophet Jonah in the nation of Israel. The problem is we live in Nineveh. We don't live where we used to live, even though our address may be the same. And that's one of the things the church is struggling with today. We now have people around us. We have neighbors. We have co-workers. We have people who we may play ball with or fish with or whatever who don't know about our God, who may not even own a Bible, how they see God is totally different from us. They haven't just slid backwards. They were born far from God, and they're moving further from God. And the challenge that God has for us is that we can't just stay over here. We need to start thinking like missionaries. We have to go to them. Just like Jonah. That's where I put the church and I moved the church. How missionaries work. Now, I realize all of us have grown up thinking of missionaries as that's a few fanatics who move to the other side of the world. And they live in grass huts, and they eat weird things, and God somehow helps them do that. And it's sure not me. 
And I think Peggy and I would say, some of you know we were missionaries for three years, but we were in Vienna. Come on. (laughs) We were embarrassed to say we were missionaries because we had that same stereotype. And Vienna's not grass huts, you know. Maybe you didn't have McDonald's in, but that was our biggest sacrifice. (laughs) We've got to change that stereotype. Because, folks, if we're going to be Jonah in our Nineveh right here, we've got to start thinking like missionaries. Because the mission field has come to us. The different temples around us, the different ways of worship, the different value systems, the different worldviews, it's here. And if we're going to be effective, we can't do what we used to do. Because it's not working. That doesn't mean it's hopeless. Nineveh wasn't hopeless. We're going to see that next week. But we've got to understand we're Nineveh, and we've got to become like Jonah. We have to become missionaries. Now, I'm going to give you missionary theory, okay? You didn't know you were coming to a class to be a missionary? We're going to go through this real quick. Missionary theory has four steps. The first one is sort of obvious. Go. You've got to go to the mission field. But that's still for us, because that means for us not going to a different country, but it does mean moving out of our comfort circles and our Christian friends and literally going to the community around us. To, in a sense, get out of here, leave our comfort zones, go there. Get to know those people far from God who live around us, work beside us. Maybe are our relatives. Maybe in our own families. But they're far from God. And once we've gone, the second step is to build bridges. And this is where what we used to think of and what we need to do, opposite directions. What were we raised with? The second step would clearly be tell. Preach. Teach. Tell them the truth. What we need to do is build bridges. We need to get to know these people. You see, if I am a missionary and I go to a foreign culture, one of the first things I have to do is I've got to learn this culture. What goes on in this village? How do they talk? What's their language? What are they talking about? How do they see the world? How do they see God? What are they concerned about? I have to understand that village. I have to understand that culture. Or I'll never be effective as a missionary. It's the second step. And you know, that's true for us too. Building bridges isn't about telling, it's about listening. It's about asking questions. It's about having our ears open. How do they think? What are they thinking about? What are they talking about? These people far from God. How do they see the world? What are their concerns? Can you answer those questions for the people far uh, around you who are far from God? Most of us as Christians can't because we really don't get to know them. We spend our time with our Christian circles. Of course we're friendly. 
and we smile, but do we really get to know them? Do we really build these bridges? Because if we don't get to know them and what makes them tick and what they're thinking and how they communicate, we'll never be able to do steps three and four. It requires the lessons learned in step two. Step three is to ask the question, how can we help? To pray the prayer to God, saying, God, you put me here. How in the world can you use me? God told Jonah what he was supposed to do when he got to Nineveh. We need to pray that same prayer. God, when I'm here, and the more I learn of these people around me who are far from you, how can you use me? What do you want to do through me? Is it some act of kindness? Is it some way of helping? Is it some way of treating somebody with respect who everybody else has rejected? What can you do through me? You see, in every one of our lives, in the circles of people around us, there are lepers who need healing. There are blind who need sight. There's people who need a cup of cold water. But we have to get to know them, and then we need to say, God, how can you use me? And the good news is, because I know this intimidates so many of us Christians, it's probably not going to be preaching. And it's not going to be an apologetic debate. So many of the things that terrify us, so often it's just a simple act of love. As I was working on this sermon and getting ready, it struck me, we have no evidence of any marketing for Jesus. There was never a website. We never have evidence of him even sending the disciples out with brochures to get them to come to the next teaching. And yet, they throng to him in the thousands. I have a theory. I believe they thronged to him in the thousands because they had either been touched or seen his acts of love. They'd been a leper he'd healed, or their cousin was. They'd been a blind man who'd received his sight. They'd been hungry, and they watched him make bread and loaves multiply. And they'd seen that love, and then they said, i got to hear this guy. Reggie McNeil, one of the gurus thinking about missional church today, I love what he says. For decades, we have tried to use can openers and pour the brains, uh, open the skulls, of the unchurched and poor in Jesus. He said, what we need to do is we need to get out there and love them so much they're using their can openers to open us up to say, what makes you tick? What makes you love the way you do? What makes you care the way you do? I've never seen anybody love like you, care like you, help like you, expecting nothing in return. What makes you tick? I think that explains the thousands who came to hear Jesus. It's step three in any missionary work. I may want to preach Jesus, but the first thing I'm going to do is dig a well. Teach some people to farm. Teach them sanitation so they get rid of disease. I got to help them. I got to love them. And that's what God calls us to do. 
when we do that, we may gain a hearing. Or somewhere, we're going to have an opportunity where somebody's going to say, I, I don't get it. Why are you doing this? And we get to tell them about a heavenly father we have that they have, even if they don't know him. We get to tell them about an older brother we have named Jesus that they may not even know about, but he already took a bullet for them. He already died on a cross for them. And he loves them. And he longs to have a relationship with them because he represents his father who loves them right now with messed up lives and poor choices, who still loves them so much he came to earth as Jesus to die for them. We may get to tell them that. We may get to answer that question, and we may not. Because what good missionaries know is the first missionary may only be able to tear down some stereotypes and till up some soil so that the next missionary gets to preach. But the first missionary still does his work and tills up the soil and destroys some stereotypes and prepares a harvest field for the next one. And we may have to do that. Because we may have to be the first Christian who's not judgmental, who's not labeling everybody or avoiding everybody. We may have to show them a different kind of Christian so that the second and the third Christian get to talk to them about Jesus. But we still need to do it. Now, how will this look? How will this look for you? I can't tell you. That would be like us sitting here, and we're going to have a potluck and a meeting today, and we're going to plan our mission work in Mindanao in the Philippines. And we would be wasting our time. Because very few of us in this room, maybe two or three, have ever been to the Philippines or Mindanao. We first got to go. And we got to get to know Mindanao. And then we'll talk about what we're going to do. So we can't sit here. I can't tell you what you need to do. It has to flow out of going. And getting to know them. And learning about Nineveh. The thing is, God asks us to go. I want to get practical today, and I want to issue a challenge. And that is, will you go? I would like to challenge every one of us to identify one place, one situation, where we're going to go. We're going to become that missionary where we will get to know the unchurched, those far from God, and we will do it intentionally to get to know them, to build some bridges, to be able to say to God, how can you use me here? I want you to pray about that and accept that challenge and ask God, where do you want me to go? Is it my neighborhood? Is it a ball team? from work? Is it a club I'm in? Is it a bunch of folks who scrapbook? Where do you want me to go? You see, we need to do family promise. We need to help the homeless. But the people in our network of relationships need Jesus just as much. We got to go to them too. 
Now here, and they're taping this, and it's okay. I want to say this officially from the pulpit. The elders may fire me. It's okay. If this means you do less in the church, then that's okay. Make time to go. Because we all know what's happening. We have filled our lives in the church with Christians. We don't have time to go. Then do one less thing in the church. Make time to go. We have to. Look how serious God was with Jonah. He's just as serious with us. Where will you go? Is it a club? Is it a neighborhood? You pray, you determine, and you set off. You stake it out. Tuesday nights, I'm here. The first Saturday of every month, I'm here. Because this is where I'm going to go. And God, I want you to show me how. I want you to open my life. Help me listen. It's going to take me way out of my comfort zone, but it's the only chance they have. And I have. And I need to go. Will you accept that challenge? If we believe what God said to Jonah, he's saying to us, then we need to accept that challenge. And we need to leave our comfort zone. And like Jonah, it's time to go. Let's pray. Father, this isn't comfortable. It's stretching. It's not what we're used to hearing. But it's so needed. The communion we celebrated today wasn't just for us. Christ died for folks around us who don't even know his name. And you have asked us to be your ambassadors and that you would make your appeal through us be reconciled to God. And we can never make that appeal if we don't first go. Help us, Father. Help us go. In your Son's name, amen.